Section 13 of A History of the Four Georges and of William the Fourth in Four Volumes, Volume 3, by Justin McCarthy and Justin Huntley McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 51. Charles James Fox. One of the most immediate results of the Wilkes controversy in the House of Commons was to draw attention to a young man who had entered Parliament at the general election of 1768 while he was still considerably under age. The young member for Midhurst made himself conspicuous as the most impassioned opponent of Wilkes. A strenuous supporter of Luttrell outside the walls of Westminster, inside those walls the boy who represented the fictitious constituency of Midhurst distinguished himself by the easy insolence with which he assailed Wilkes and the popular cause which Wilkes represented. He delighted in informing the delighted majority in the House that he, for his part, paid no regard whatever to the voice of the people. When Burke condescended to notice and to rebuke the impertinence of a youth of nineteen, he little thought that the lad whom he reproved would come to be a far more extreme advocate of popular rights than he himself, or that the chronicle of the century, in recording the names of those who made themselves prominent for the utterance of democratic opinions, should place the name of John Wilkes far below the name of Charles James Fox. It would not be easy to imagine a worse training for a youth intended for the service of his country and destined to contend for the honors of the state than the life that was lived by charles james fox from early boyhood to early manhood it was not in the power of his father henry fox lord holland to set before his son the example of a parent whose public life was pure admirable and honorable but in the domestic circle lord holland was a very different man from the corrupt and juggling politician known to the world. In the domestic circle, his affections and his tendernesses were his most conspicuous traits, and in the domestic circle he was as unfortunate for his children through his very virtues as outside it he was unfortunate by reason of his vices. Fox was a loving husband, but he was an adoring father, and the extremest zeal and warmth of his adoration was given to his son, Charles James. The child was from the first precocious, alert, and gifted beyond his years, and the father fostered and flattered the precocity with a kind of worship that proved, as it was bound to prove, disastrous. It seems to have been Henry Fox's deliberate belief that the best way to bring up a spirited, gifted, headstrong child was to gratify every wish, surrender to every whim, and pander to every passion that ebullient youth could feel. The anecdotes of the day team with tales of the fantastic homage that Fox paid to the desires and moods of his imperious infant. He made him his companion while he was still in the nursery. He allowed him to be his master before he had fairly left it. Never was the creed of Thelema 
acted upon more consistently and persistently than by Lord Holland toward Charles James Fox. It is an astonishing proof of the strength and innate goodness of the childish nature that it was not ruined outright, hopelessly and helplessly, by the worst training ever given to a son by a father. That it did Fox infinite harm cannot be denied, and it was only to be expected. That it failed entirely to unbalance his mind and destroy his character only serves to show the sterling temper of Fox's mettle. His youth was like his childhood, petted, spoiled, wayward, capricious, and captivating. Everyone loved him, his father, his father's friends, the school companions with whom he wrote Latin verses in praise of lovely ladies with lovely names. All through his life, the love of men and the love of women was given to him with a generosity that was only equal to the lovable nature that compelled and commanded it. His career is one record of unrivaled precocity. As a child, he had been his father's friend rather than his father's plaything. As a lad, he was his father's traveling companion, and learned from that father the pleasant art of sowing wild oats, not with the hand, but with the whole sack. He returned to England a proficient gambler, a finished rake, a dear friend of famous men, the darling of beautiful women, to enter before he was of age upon that political career in which it seemed certain that if he would follow his father's steps, he might hope for more than his father's fortunes. If Charles James Fox had been quite cankered by his father's care, if the essence of his genius had been corruptible, he might have given the king's friends a leader as far removed from them as Lucifer from his satellites, and contrived perhaps, though that indeed would have been difficult, to amass almost as much money as he was able to spend with comfort. To judge by the young man's initial enterprise, his parliamentary career promised to be as brilliant and as brutal as any king who hated Chatham and hated Wilkes and hated the American colonies could possibly desire. The furious intolerance of his maiden speech was happily, however, only like that false dawn familiar to travelers in the East. The true sunrise was yet to come. But for six years he was as consistent in his support of Lord North and the policy that North represented, as for the rest of his career he was consistent in opposition to it. The life of Fox recalls in its brilliant activity, in its no less brilliant scholarship, the dazzling careers of some of those Italian princes who were equally at home and equally distinguished in the battlefield and in the library, equally happy in handling their weapons or in turning the pages of the latest volume from the presses of Aldus that renewed the youth of some masterpieces of Greece or Rome. Fox's scholarship would have been remarkable in a man whose days and nights were devoted to scholarship alone. It was little less than marvelous in a man who gave a large part of his days to the fiercest political fights of a fiercely political age and a large part of his nights 
to the fascination of the card-table, the disasters of the dice-box, and the pursuit of the sweet elusive shadow which is called pleasure. Fox's love for literature was indeed its own reward. In the darkest hours of a life that tasted the bitterness of many public and many private sorrows, he could steep his vexed spirit in the sweet waters watched by the muses, and arise cleansed, inspirited, and comforted. Though he saw those public honors that his genius deserved denied, though he lost those chances of command by which he could best have served his country, though his own fault wrecked his fortune, and his own follies wasted his substance and delivered the home of his glorious youth into alien hands, he could turn from troubles that would have broken the spirit and cracked the heart of a less heroic fighter to find solace and consolation in the golden music of the Odyssey and the majestic cadences of Virgil. Fox loved the classics with the passion of a poet, not with the patience of a pedant, and found that noble rapture in the human beauty of Euripides which Parson Adams found in the divine grandeur of Aeschylus. But if his reading in the literature of Greece and Rome was wide and deep, it was not limited to the literatures which the world calls classic. France, Italy, Spain offered him their best and found him a worthy worshipper, the faithful lover and loyal student of all that was best in each. He was the comrade of Don Quixote as he was the comrade of Orlando Furioso and the comrade of Gil Blas. But he was never one of those who exalt the laurels of other lands to the neglect of those of their own. He knew English literature and loved English literature as well as if he had never scanned a Latin line or conjugated a Greek verb or read a page of Moliere, or Calderon, or Metastasio. He knew Chaucer as well as it was possible for any one then or for generations later to know Chaucer, and he appreciated him as few have appreciated him before or since. The poets of his own time were as dear to him in their degree as the singer of England's morning song. It is hardly necessary to say that he was as familiar with Shakespeare as every one should be, and as very few are. Only one arc was wanting to the circle of his splendid culture. Only one string was lacking to the bow of his prodigious reading. There was a great literature growing up in a neighboring country of which Charles Fox knew nothing, and of which we cannot doubt that he would have rejoiced to know much. It is curious that in a country which had been ruled for three successive reigns by German sovereigns, the German language was entirely neglected, and the glorious dawn of German literature entirely ignored. While Fox was still a young man playing at love, playing at cards, playing at politics, and through all these diversions adding to that mighty store of learning and training his mind in the finest and most intimate judgments, upon the greek and roman poets germany had been enriched by the masterpiece of the greatest critic since aristotle and was fostering the golden youth of the greatest poet since shakespeare 
it would have amazed Fox, as it would have amazed every English scholar then living, if he could have been told that the spirit of the antique world was to be renewed in a country which had given them four generations of phlegmatic princes, and in a language of which few scholars in England knew a single word. Fox's term of adherence to North and to North's policy was not too happy a time for the nominal superior. A hot-headed young lord of the Admiralty resigned his office in a huff, and was not without difficulty persuaded to return to office as Commissioner of the Treasury. The breach between Fox and North was bridged over, but the bridge was frail. The two men eyed each other with disfavor. Fox asserted his independence by occasionally voting against the minister, by consorting with Burke. After the death of Lord Holland, North revenged himself by dismissing Fox from office in a letter famous for its insolent brevity. For a time, Fox still accorded to the ministry an uncertain support, but he was drifting in thought and speech and action in the inevitable direction of his genius. The hour came when he took his seat on the opposition benches and asserted himself as a formidable opponent of the government. A quarrel across the Atlantic gave him the opportunity to prove that the principles which men of today would call liberal principles had gained one of their greatest and one of their most eloquent champions. End of section 13